Holy Father, we rejoice. We rejoice with the choir. We've rejoiced as a worshiping congregation. We gather as family. We gather as community. You have a word for us. Students and faculty and alumni and community alike. Let the word today please be clear. Keep the preacher out of the way. Let the Spirit have his way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, in the book of Acts, which is our theme book in this new series, Primetime, there are only two young adults mentioned by name. There are hundreds of young adults, I'm sure, in the, in the narrative of Acts, but only two are called young and then we're given their names. One of the two we remember because he fell asleep in church. Have you ever seen somebody fall asleep in church? I know you don't, but I mean, have you seen somebody else just kind of doze off? Barbara Bush, the wife of the former President Bush, once remarked, if you take, if you would take everybody who sleeps in church and line them up end to end, they'd be a whole lot more comfortable. (laughs) This young man is remembered because he slept in church. But in the story, his name means fortunate, but in this story, there is a paradigm for the primetime generation of the day. And so, without any further ado, would you please go to the book of Acts? It's our theme book for this series, Primetime. This is part four, a laptop, cell phone, and plane ticket. It's the title of today's teaching. Go to Acts chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a pew Bible right in front of you. Grab that pew Bible. This would be page 749. Vital paradigm for the church of the primetime generation tucked away in this story in Acts chapter 20. I'll be in the today's New International Version. Any translation you have is fine. The New King James is what's in the pew rack. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, And on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. I want to hit the pause button right there because you can read that text and you can say, oh man, look at that. It's obviously clear. They're having Sunday worship in the New Testament. It says first day. And of course, you're right. Now, the overwhelming uh, evidence for the church in the New Testament, of course, is that they worshiped on the seventh day Sabbath. So why does it say first day? It's clearly a worship service. Scholars are not sure which reckoning, time reckoning that uh, Dr. Luke is using here in this narrative. He could be using the Jewish way of reckoning time or the Roman way. Now, the Jewish way, you remember, reckons time from sunset to sunset. So if this were the first day of the week, that would mean from Saturday night to Sunday evening at sundown. And in fact, the New English Bible came along, used that wing of scholarship and said, obviously, that is the meaning that Dr. Luke intended. And so in the New English Bible, you read uh, Acts 20, verse 7 this way on Saturday night, see, on Saturday night. In our assembly for the breaking of bread, Paul, who was to leave the next day, addressed them and went on speaking until midnight. However, if you use the Roman reckoning of time, that would be like our time, be from midnight to midnight. So if we use that reckoning, this would have to be late Sunday night and into early Monday morning because it's, it's an all-night meeting. But ladies and gentlemen, either reckoning you use, clearly we're not dealing with a Sunday morning worship service. 
You say, hey, wait a minute, Dwight, but it says they, they broke bread. So that's obviously a reference to the, the Lord's Supper. It's true. Oftentimes, breaking bread in the book of Acts means the Lord's Supper, although sometimes it's just social potlucking together. But probably this was the Lord's Supper. However, Acts 2.46 reads, And they went from house to house and broke bread daily. So you can't take breaking bread and make that uh, the definition of a holy day. They did it every day of the week. And besides, uh, in, here in Troas, Paul has already been here seven days. He's leaving tomorrow. This is his last chance. Perhaps they will never see his face again. It's a farewell meeting. And so it goes all night long. So, they're in, the, they're in that upper room. Verse 8. The narrative continues. There were many lamps... In the upstairs room where we were meeting. Ah, we, that would be Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, so he's obviously present. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Verse 9, and seated in a window was a young man, a young man named Eutychus. His name means fortunate, and I'll tell you what, he is the fortunate one who has chosen the best seat in the house. You think about it. Luke has just described many lamps. Now, these are oil lamps. That means black smoke. And belching heat. They're on the third floor. They are jam-packed. Bodies galore. That room is stifling. It's the young adult, to his credit, who wisely surmises the scene and says, there's no way I'm going to sit in the middle of that. And he picks an open window and props himself up in the sill. Brilliant move. Verse 9 again. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking... If you've ever watched somebody sleep in church, you know that is the perfect, that is the perfect definition because you slowly start to sink. You catch yourself and you go back and forth. You don't think I see it, but I always watch it from up front here. And, and it is a great, I just love the way you try to cover it up by putting that, that bulletin in front of you. We, we know what you're doing behind a bulletin because before you fall asleep, your hand falls down. You don't know that, but that's what happens. All right. So here's what's happening here. See, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Hallelujah. Those of us who are long-winded preachers take great comfort and refuge in the mighty Apostle Paul who keeps preaching and preaching and preaching. You go, Paul. So Eutychus was, sleep, was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, here comes the tragedy. When he was sound asleep, once you're sound asleep, wherever you are, you are out of control. Trust me, your head is bobbing every which way. We all know, by the way, what's happening. But when he was sound asleep, obviously his head bobs out. He's been sitting there, the fresh, cool night breeze just sucking it in. None of that oily lamp, none of those smelly bodies, listening to the verbose preacher. But when he goes, tragically, his head leads the way. And he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, like in Europe, ground floor has no number. It's in in the... uh, Middle East. So it's ground one, two, three. So when he says third floor, he's talking about our fourth story. That's between 30 to 40 feet. He goes head first. No doubt he went head first. Massive head trauma. And he's dead. 
You say, oh, no, he's not dead, Dwight. He's just unconscious. Oh, you forget who's writing the story. A physician who obviously carefully chooses his words. And the words are dead. Dead. And alive. There's still good news coming. So he's dead. You can hear the shriek in that jam-packed upper floor as the entire congregation... And by the way, the stairs are all on the outside in the Middle East. So they're all pounding down those stairs. And when they take him up, Luke says he was dead. They're holding the corpse. Still warm. Paul. Paul, the short, stocky apostle. Half blind. In the dark. Trying to make his way down those same stairs. And I'm sure he is praying out loud to the God of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Save this boy. And when Paul comes down, what verse is this? Verse 10. Paul went down. See? Boom, 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 boom. Four flights. Paul went down. And he does what Elijah did when he walked into a room with a dead boy. He does what Elisha did when he walked into a room with a dead boy. Paul does the same thing. He throws himself and he threw himself on the young man and he put his arms around him. And he just hugged the body. He hugged the body. Until finally, Paul could look up. And it says here in the TNIV, don't be alarmed. In the Greek it says, stop your agitation. Obviously, there is a commotion going on. Time out. He's alive. And Eutychus' eyes flutter. That young adult sits up and says, what happened? And you can be sure, ladies and gentlemen, that beneath that starry, starry night, there was an instantaneous prayer service on the ground floor. There's been a resurrection. He lives. And Paul... Bless his soul, not one to be distracted by the dramatic, turns to the crowd and says, Hey, listen, folks, I was just in the middle of a sentence. I have more I need to say. Let's get up, get up, get up. Let's go up there. I want to still talk to you. And that's exactly what happened here in verse 11. Then he, Paul, went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. Now, notice verse 12. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Why would we share a story like this on Alumni Sabbath? Ah, could it be that in the story of Eutychus, there is a paradigm tucked away about the church of the primetime generation. There's a word I intentionally skipped over when we read it without comment. I want to go back to that word. Acts, uh, verse, verse 7 here in Acts 20. And on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Now, the Greek word for kept on talking is not kept on preaching. He is not preaching now. Something else is happening on the fourth floor of that little Troas building. Something else is going on. In fact, the Greek word here is dialegomai, from whence comes our word dialogue. So they are having a... a Back-to-front, front-to-back, Q&A, question, conversation. I got a question, Paul. He's opened up, surely opening up his heart. One last time, I want to tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you the story of Calvary again. Somewhere in the night, somebody says, but Paul, how are we going to reach Troas? Back and forth, the conversation goes. Now, here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. They're talking to themselves. And while the church was talking to themselves, the young adult fell away. That point is so significant, I wish you'd write it down right now. Would you take your study guide that's in your alumni bulletin today? 
reach inside and pull out that study guide. If you didn't get one, we've got the friendliest ushers in the world. You just hold your hand up. You didn't know as an alumnus that you needed everybody in your family to have one. So if you only got one bulletin per family, hold your hand up. All the way up to the balcony. Trust that the choir has the study guides. That point is so significant, we need to jot it down. And by the way, while we're handing those out here, those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You can get the same study guide. We put that website on the screen for you. www.pmchurch.tv That's our website. You're looking for this series called Prime Time. This is part four. Title of this teaching, Pentecost 2, A Laptop, Cell Phone, and Plane Ticket. When you see that title, it'll say Study Guide right under it. You click that, you'll have the very same study guide there on your computer screen. All right, let's get the point while it's still fresh in our minds. Jot it down, will you please? Right there at the top of the study guide, the Greek word for talking is dialegomai. From whence comes our word dialogue. They're having a tete-a-tete. They're going back and forth. They are talking to themselves. They're having a dialogue. And it, that word refers to a collective conversation between the speaker and the audience. What's the point, Dwight? The point is this. While the church was talking to themselves, the young adult dropped out. It happened while the church was talking to themselves. I love this community of faith that I was born into. Fifth generation Adventist, fourth generation preacher. I've hung around this church for a long time. I can tell you something about the Seventh-day Adventist church. Most of you are going to agree. In fact, some of you, any denomination that you might represent, those of you watching, I have a feeling you're going to say the same. Because about our church, this church I love, we love talking to each other. I mean, we just love talking to each other. And then... We throw in our in-house collective conversations into publications just to keep the conversations going. So that you have Spectrum Magazine and the Journal of the Adventist Theological Association, two very contrary journals that carry on sometimes heated conversations with each other over issues dear at least to the editors and the readers. You have the Adventist Review and you have Adventists today who love to carry on sometimes very defensive conversations over issues dear to the editors and at least the readers. We love to talk to each other. And, and, and by the way, nothing will stir up our juices more quickly than a good theological or ecclesiastical controversy. Let's get into it. Put, up your, put your dukes up. Let's talk. We love to talk to each other. But in the process... We have a generation of young adults today, young Eutychuses, who are watching and listening from the periphery. They're sitting in the windowsills, they're standing in the back door, and they are wondering, shall I come in or shall I leave? While we are talking to each other, creating this collective heat and noise, there they are. Until today, we have a generation in the church that is not in the church today. Alan Martin teaches over here at the Theological Seminary. My friend Alan wrote an article, Nick, for your great uh, journal, Ministry Magazine, this summer, July. And in this, uh, Alan is a professor for discipleship and family ministry here. In this piece, he noted, and jot these. these, these you can't believe these numbers. Look at them, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Jot them down. The median age for, the North, for North American Seventh-day Adventists is 58 compared to the median ages of the United States and Canada, 36 and 37, respectively. Can you believe that number? Keep writing. More than 1,000 local Adventist churches out of a total of 5,500 in North America have no children or teens at all. I'll tell you where those churches are going. They're going to adios. They'll die off. 
Come on, we're not dealing with rocket science here. Our own Roger Dudley. Seminal, landmark research on the Adventist young. Uh, Alan's quoting Roger here. And you see the quotation from Roger's study. It seems reasonable to believe that at least 40 to 50 percent of Seventh-day Adventist teenagers, 40 to 50 percent of teenagers are essentially leaving the church by their middle 20s. By the time they become young adults, it really is adios. They're just leaving. 40 to 50 percent. Wow. You say, oh, come on, Pastor. (laughs) That's not just the problem of the church. That's the problem of all of society. They're all checking out these young. Oh, my friend, I beg to differ with you in this presidential cycle. There is a candidate named Barack Obama who, by the hundreds of thousands, has attracted the young to his candidacy. Don't you tell me that young adults are checking out of the process. They are, as never before in the political process, engaged this year. Oh, well. Of course, it doesn't mean that we've lost all the young in the church. You're right. Not only are young adults engaged in the political process, they are also engaged in the spiritual process. Which means that by no means are they all checking out. Thousands, listen to this, thousands, I don't know what the number will be, thousands of Seventh-day Adventist young adults just before Christmas will gather in San Jose, California this year in the 7th Annual GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ Convocation. They'll pay their own way. They'll come from all over the continent. Do you know why they'll gather? Because they are tired of the church talking to itself. That's why. They're ready to take things in their own hands. If, if nobody else wants to enlist us, we'll engage ourselves in a new conversation. This Christmas, by the thousands. I got an, I got an email from a, a young adult here at Andrews University this week. Meyer Hall, Pastor Nelson, you've talked a lot about revival in the past few weeks. Revival on the Andrews University campus. Revival in the world as a whole. We're tangentially facing that because the primetime series gets us back to when the church was revived. Nothing wrong with thinking about it all over again. So you've talked a lot about this. I am a student at Andrews and I share that dream. What can I do? I've prayed about it and the Spirit told me that you might have ideas of how I can help make that dream a reality. Thank you for your time. And he signs his name. I wrote him back and said, we got to talk. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, they're here. Young adults who are saying, I want to get involved. I want the church to be revived. I want to have, is there anything I can do? Tell me they're all checked out. Next time you see Barack Obama, remind yourself, you can still appeal to the young for a cause bigger than themselves. The plain truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that we are a church desperately in need of another Pentecost and a new primetime generation. In fact, I'm going to be really candid with you now. Kind of think out loud with you. I wonder if the economic crisis that our nation and world are facing today, by the way, while we are worshiping here right now, they're trying to figure it out. I wonder to myself, Could this become a catalyst for the Pentecost II generation? I mean, you look at how similar the times were 2,000 years apart. 
but did a little bit of research. Here's Philip Harlan from York University in Toronto. He's written a piece called The The Economy of First Century Palestine, State of the Scholarly Discussion. And I'm reading his analysis. I'm amazed at the striking similarity between our 2,000 years apart economies. Uh, This is in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen. This is Harlan. In that first century A.D., more and more of the land in Palestine became concentrated, and I'm quoting now, into the hands of fewer large landowners at the expense of the peasants. What's going on? The forfeiture of land due to indebtedness was a main cause of peasants losing their land. End quote. Sounds like an economic meltdown to me. Sounds like what we're having today. Now, 10,000 houses Homes a day are being foreclosed in the United States alone. Not a word about Canada. 10,000 a day. Because the peasantry is indebted. We can't keep this up any longer. And what's happening with the wealthy landowners? Read Wall Street investment banks who have gobbled up such massive amounts of toxic debt that they are threatening to collapse an entire economy as a consequence. You want to talk about the economy? The whole nation is talking about it. We can worship and think about it as well. Bloomberg.com. I read a fascinating piece last week analyzing the last 10 days. What has happened? I didn't know this. You didn't know this. But apparently, all right, apparently, last Thursday, a week ago, we came to the precipitous edge of an economic meltdown in this nation. Hank Paulson, the Secretary of Treasury here in the United States, and Ben Bernanke, the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, We're in Nancy Pelosi's office a week ago Thursday, sitting about an oak table. Twelve congressional leaders have gathered. And Paulson and Bernanke took turns describing where we are as of a week ago Thursday night. Apparently, I didn't know this either, but the credit lines had frozen, completely frozen, so that banks were refusing to lend to even banks. And if banks will not pass money, it's over. You've you've shut the whole system down. And apparently, Wednesday night, quietly, money is being withdrawn outside our country and placed away from the United States. So Bernanke gets up, according to this Bloomberg.com piece, he gets up. And he announces to them, and of course, this is after the Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch and AIG. And by the way, yesterday, the largest bank in history went bankrupt. Largest bankruptcy in history. He announces to the leaders, you could have massive failures within days, he told the group. And it would go beyond the banking system. And he started naming brand name com- uh, companies. Now, here's the line that caught my eye. Politicians leaving the meeting a week ago Thursday said they were shocked at these portents of Armageddon from the usually understated Bernanke. They left the 90-minute meeting looking shaken and resolved to act before the election. Now, hold on. Christopher Dodd, Connecticut Democrat and chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, is quoted, It was as sobering a meeting as any of us have ever attended in our careers here. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is simply this. We now live in an hour of profound change. You understand this, don't you? Literally overnight, the headlines can rewrite life as we know it. In that context, could it be that like Pentecost 1, Pentecost 2 will come in an hour of economic crisis? I want you to think for one moment the amazing similarities between the 120 men, women, and young adults crowded into the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and the young adult generation, the prime time generation today, 
of which 3,400 have been entrusted to Andrews University. I want you to notice the similarities for a moment. In fact, it's in your study guide. Jot these down, will you? These are the parallels. Number one, and I'm speaking to the young adults who are here right now. Number one, just like them, Pentecost 1, you are also devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Hands down. You have a passion for Christ. You have a passion for His mission. Just like them, you have number one. Number two, just like them, you are also relatively poor and dominantly landless. Perfect description of an Andrews University student. Dominantly poor, relatively poor, poor, and dominantly landless. You own nothing. Nothing. And number three, just like them, you are also Sabbatarian. You worship the Creator on the seventh-day Sabbath. And you are little a Adventist. You are fervent in your belief that Jesus is coming soon. By the way, that makes number four. Just like them, you are also without roots and thus perfectly positioned to be instantly mobilized by the Holy Spirit. Because unlike them, all you need is a laptop, a cell phone, and a plane ticket. There's never been a generation so rapidly deployed or so constantly in touch as this primetime generation. Guess what, guys? You like that animation? (laughs) They worked on that between services. That's a little extra they gave me with no, no charge. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, God can mobilize this primetime generation. God can mobilize these young adults, you young adults, anywhere on the planet He wishes. And because you have so little, hallelujah, you don't have a lot to pack up. Throw in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and you're ready to go. And God's ready to go. You've been set up, by the way. Sorry to be the one to announce this to you. You've been set up by the Holy Spirit. All you need now is for that mighty third person of the Godhead to pour Himself out upon you. And you are it. Pentecost 2. Margaret Mead, the popular... American cultural anthropologist of the last century. She wrote a line. I take great comfort in this line. It's in your study guide. Isn't this something? Mead writes, Never underestimate the ability of a small group of committed individuals to change the world. Indeed, they are the only ones that have. You think about the great changes of history. This little nation, this little nation was formed by just a handful of young, by the way. Communism formed by just a handful. The church in Acts formed by just a handful. Mead is absolutely right. You've got to be committed, but it can be a small group of committed. They're the only ones that have brought change on this planet. Listen, you may say, hey, we, we are no comparison with Obama's army of the young. Oh, you may not be. But you've aligned yourself to the Christ of Calvary. And under His blood-stained banner, you have all the forces of heaven ready to be unleashed Not for a political cause, but for the greatest agenda in the history of this universe, and that is the salvation of the human race. Man, you got set up. You got born at the right time. God says, I got to have you. Tell you what, baby boomers were born at the wrong time. We got so many toys now, our roots are so deep. God says, Give me another generation. How many houses do those people have? How many cars in those garages? I need another generation. 
I need another generation. You know what? Speaking of Margaret Mead, a woman a century earlier than Margaret Mead wrote these words in your study guide. The last words in your study guide. I like this. I carry these words in the back of my Bible. With such an army of workers, Ellen White, with such an army of workers as our youth rightly trained might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. Just like that. Primetime generation. That's all he needs. How soon might the end come? The end of suffering and sorrow and sin. Isn't that something? Just like that. God can do it with his strategic primetime army. I'm telling you. That's what keeps me going. That is what keeps me going. Because you finally arrived. Don't sell yourself short. Some of you are doing little speeches in your mind right now. It's not me. It's not me. Get off of that trip. It is you. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. It's your mission. With such an army as this, primetime generation of the young. Well, I tell you what, I find that word army very unique. The blogosphere has gone wild over this economic meltdown. And I was led through the blogosphere to armynews.com. They're not saying much about this in public. I don't know why. But I found out. I went to armynews.com. It's an army report. Listen to this. It reported that a a brigade is being brought back from Iraq and assigned to this nation. Heretofore, the National Guard have been assigned to this nation. And the army's purpose is go out there. But now they've assigned a brigade to the United States. What for? Marking the, and I'm quoting now, the first time an active unit has been given a dedicated assignment to NORTHCOM. You're saying, what's NORTHCOM? Oh, it's this joint command established in 2002 to provide command and control for federal homeland defense efforts. We're going to use the Army now amongst our people. Now watch this. What, are, what, what, what kind of efforts? Another quote. They may be called upon to help with civil unrest and crowd control. End quote. Crowd control? Somebody expecting some trouble? This much is certain. If ever there were a critical hour for God's young army to be mobilized, society's ready. Is it? Prime time. Prime time has come. I believe that Jesus has raised up your generation for a mission. That no other, nobody else can fulfill but you. We've been praying for you. We've been waiting for you. You came at the right time, a time of utter instability. You come with the right qualifications, a willingness for immediate mobility. But here's the question. Now that you've come, are you ready to go? Hmm? Now that you've come, are you ready to go? I want to end with that question. I'm not going to end with a heart-tugging story. I want to end with an earnest appeal. If you're young, listen, please. I was driving out of the uh, beautiful new entrance to Andrews University yesterday. And I saw this young adult on a tiny little motor scooter. I've never seen it motorized. I've never seen such a small thing. And he's going down, you know, the... There's a white stripe that lets bike, bikers go in there. So he's going down there. We both get to the highway at the same time and he cuts behind me. So I roll my window down because he's coming up beside me. I make some wisecrack about uh, his transportation. 
And he sees who it is. He said, hey, pastor, I've been wanting to talk to you. I said, what's up? He said, you know what? I believe God is coming soon. And there is some, some stuff I need to talk about. I said, hey, come in the office next week. He's a social work major. I sense something's going on on this planet. And I need to talk to you. Is there something we can be doing? Oh, yes, there is something you can be doing. God's putting an army together. Rapid mobilization. No roots. Just a laptop, a cell phone, and a plane ticket. That's all you need. Prime time. You're it. Jesus has called you. The Lord of Calvary, greater than any presidential candidate, is saying, I need you, boy. I need you, girl. You work for me. You work for me. We have the biggest mission in the history of the universe. And we need to wrap it up now. And so I need to make an appeal right now to those sitting behind me and those sitting in front. If you are a young adult, and I'll let you decide what that is. If you are a young adult, and you would be willing to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I will join that army. I will join your primetime army. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll go to any nation on earth that you send me to. I'll go to any state in the union you send me to. You give me a plane ticket and I'll go. I'll go. If you'd you'd be willing to make that kind of commitment as a young adult, I'm going to ask you to stand on your feet and come, come to the front right now. Right now. You're the prime time generation. You're in the back of the balcony. Come forward. You're in the, you're in the choir behind me. Come forward. Say, I'm ready, Jesus. You say the word and I go. Now look at Guys, I have no idea where Christ is going to send you. God bless you. God bless you. I have no idea where Jesus is going to send you. I just know He's been waiting a long time for you to come. Hallelujah. And you're here. Praise God. You're not making a commitment to me. You're not even making a commitment to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You're making a commitment to the Lord of the church. Say, now go, I'll count me into the prime time. I'm prime time. I have no idea where the economy is going. You know what? I don't either. I don't care. I just know God is ready to move. I know that everything's set up. I know that if God wants to pull the plug, He can pull the plug tomorrow. That's His business. But you're the generation, the army. How soon the end could come with an army like this. Some of you can take a year off next year. Just a year off. I'll go for a year. Some of you say, there's no way, Dwight. I've got to get out of here. I'm staying right in. That's fine. We need you right here. We need you in Benton Harbor. We need you right here in this community. The point is, we just need you. The church has been waiting for you. And you're it. And I'm so proud of you. You are what keeps this university going. You're what keeps this little preacher going too. How about at Andrews University? Here they are. They stood in First Church, by the way, too. Here they are. This is the young. This is the primetime generation. I want to make an appeal to you alumni who are here and the rest of you adults. I was in a potluck 
last Sabbath for the Sabbath school class. And one of the retirees said, hey, Dwight, this economy is a mess. I said, yeah, I know. He said, hey, you know, we have, a, we have some money set aside. At what point, Dwight, are we supposed to uh, invest that money in the work of the church? And I looked back at him and I said, are you kidding me? I have no idea. He said, do you suppose that you'd say something from up front if that time came? Well, I suppose. But I said to this, I said to my friend, I said, listen to me. You know, Karen and I are thinking a little bit, hey, what about the extras? I'll tell you what. One thing is clear in my thinking. That I want whatever discretionary income that God has entrusted to me, I would like to invest it with Him before the money is worthless. Because there'll be one day that that bank account is paper, zero, nada. Just ask the people who lived through the Great Depression. They're now starting to cast an eye backward. Ben Bernanke, a specialist in the Great Depression. They're, they're looking backward now and saying, could it be? Who knows? The point is, and I'm appealing to you alumni and adults now, you have some money you can invest. We need thousands of dollars. We need plane t- Look at this. We need plane tickets. We've got to get this generation. They're ready to go. They just don't. They're poor. Like Pentecost 1. They need some help. So we're receiving an offering today. Yes, we are. There's a little, uh, there's a little envelope in your bulletin that looks like this. I wish the alumni, everybody else who's seated right now, I wish you'd pull this, pull this little envelope out. Because this is your way to say, hey, Dwight, I'll help out. You bet. I don't care if they go overseas. I don't care if they stay in Benton Harbor. I don't care if they go. We just we had a couple of student missionaries up here who went to Indianapolis last year during chapel. They were giving their testimony. I don't care if they go to India. I don't care where they go. I just want to help them go. Here's my money. You say, Dwight, I didn't bring anything to really uh, fill this up. Well, it does take a credit card. But if you're not prepared to give, I wish you'd write your name down. I wish you'd write your name down in an email address and say, hey, listen, I'll put, and put the amount that you would like to give. See, these kids, they're ready to go. You can help send them. God is so excited. He's got his generation, Pentecost, to could be the legacy of this generation. That's God's call, not mine. I just know that I want to go down fighting to the end. And I want to go with these young. By the way, somebody, somebody came up to me afterwards. Hey, Dwight, don't forget us who are 80. Now, I'm not forgetting you. You and I, baby boomers, we don't move now. We're stuck. But that's okay. We got stuff that we can, we can give to the cause. And we can be at work in the very little communities where God has already placed us. This is for all of us. Prime time is every demographic. But these are the mobilized ones. These are the front guard that Jesus has raised up. So, we're going to sing a song. Put the words on the screen. I need the audience, please, to stay seated so the ushers can come by. I will follow thee. These words are written back in 1886 by James Lawson Elgenberg. I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoe'er my lot may be. Where thou goest, I will follow. Yes, my Lord, I'll follow thee. We'll put three stanzas on the screen. That's all we're going to sing. And when I've had a chance for all of us to stand and have prayer, then Japheth, Chaplain Japheth, is right there. Please, those of you who have come forward, just go right out those double doors to the next double doors. It's the youth chapel. I want just one more moment with you before you leave. I'll put something in your hand, something for you to remember this by. All right? All right, ushers, you ready to go? You're going to have to get through these aisles, but you can do that. Let's put the words on the screen. Let's start singing.
Father, you know our hearts. You know. That's what we want. We wouldn't have been here today if that weren't our longing. We want to follow you. We want to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads. Cold, stormy waters will go there. High plateaued deserts will go there. Crowded urban jungles will go there. We'll go wherever Jesus goes. And oh, Father, I want to thank you for these who are the young in our midst. Prime time generation. You have spoken to them today. The Spirit has enlisted them. I pray that every young adult here, man and woman, would never forget this Sabbath and the commitment he, the commitment she made. Bring this memory back again and again. The going isn't going to be easy. But in those hours of midnight, you whisper, I have called you. You said yes. You're in my army. I need you till you die. Oh, Jesus, seal us all. Please. How soon the end to suffering and sorrow and sin might come. Pentecost, we plead. And now to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve His God and Father, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. Look! He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. And so shall it be. Amen.